Hi, I'm Brian Sullivan, and tonight is another crypto crackdown coming. The world's largest exchange feeling the wrath of the federal government. Skybridge's Anthony Scaramucci is here. Tom Cruise's new mission, taking on IMAX, a blockbuster showdown coming soon to a theater near you. Critical West Coast ports come to a halt as some union workers walk out. Will America's supply chains be crunched once again? Love Formula One racing? Well, who doesn't? We're going to show you how you might be able to cash in on the booming sport. And it is Make It Monday, and you will not believe how much video games or vending machines, rather, might be able to make you. We're going to hear from one entrepreneur, that and much more over the hour. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. A good evening here and good afternoon out west. We're going to get to all those stories shortly. But first up, a moment that we have not had in nearly a decade. Apple is finally pulling back the curtain on what it hopes will be tech's next game changer. Needless to say, that bar is pretty high. This is iMac. We are introducing a product today, and that product is called iPod. And we are calling it iPhone. Today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. And we call it the iPad. That's what it looks like. Apple Watch is the most personal device we've ever created. I'm excited to announce an entirely new AR platform with a revolutionary new product. Introducing Apple Vision Pro. So the age of the Apple headset officially begins. It's cool, but at 3,500 bucks, it ain't cheap. So let's dive a little more into the reality of this mixed reality thing. Steve Kovac is live and in person at Apple's HQ. Steve. Yeah, Brian. So I got to take a look at, at the headset. Didn't get to try it out quite yet. But look, it like you said, that is what everyone's talking about, that $3,500 price tag. To put that in perspective, the, some of the MacBooks they announced today were only about 1000 bucks. So you can buy more than three of those and still not quite equal one of these new headsets. But it does a lot of the same stuff that we've been hearing about. That means it, the mixed reality uh, paradigm, if you will, meaning cameras on the outside, screen on the inside, overlay digital images on top. But the real question I had going into today and my big takeaway is what is the pitch basically? And in my opinion, based on what they showed this thing can do, it's based on entertainment. A lot of, first of all, CEO, uh, Disney CEO, rather, Bob Iger came out and touted all the work Disney has been doing on this device uh, for the last couple years. They got early access to it. Disney Plus will be there on launch day. NBA content, uh, NFL uh, Monday Night Football content. It's very uh, targeting this whole immersive entertainment experience. Not as much of a productivity device, Brian, but it will be able to run iPad apps. And basically the way that works is you kind of float the app in real space around you and use it that way. No controller, but you do use your hands and your voice to operate everything. Yeah, we saw a little bit of that video. You know, we showed some very iconic, iconic moments. Steve, what was the crowd reaction to this? 
Yeah, so it's a little, Apple events are a little different, but people were swarming in the demo area uh, just after the keynote wrapped. Uh, it's not your typical developers conference. Usually there are thousands of people here. Today there are maybe uh, several hundred people here, but boy, were they crowded around this. They get their first look at this project. We're looking at Tim Cook here showing it off uh, to the people who are attending uh, in the Steve Jobs Theater. Uh, the reaction was good, and in fact, the reaction was really good from some people who already got to test it. Apple was going through the demo process with press and analysts right now, and we're already seeing really uh, positive reactions about how great the displays are and how uh, great it is to use yeah. compared to the headsets that are out there today, including uh, those from Meta. I, I know you haven't used it yet, but is it, and we saw the video, you, are you doing anything but watching movies and like scrolling through the internet on the, what's the, is there one practical use I'm not thinking of? Yeah, it doesn't sound like they have one practical killer app, but that is also why, Brian, they announced this at their annual developers conference. The idea being they're going to give tons of developers in attendance here at Apple Park today and also attending the conference virtually all the tools they need to come up with creative ways to use this headset. And by the way, they have the better part of a year to figure it out how they want to make apps for the Vision Pro before it comes out in early 2024. So we got a long way to go before that's even yeah. really figured out. But right now, it seems like Apple wants to focus on really high-end entertainment. Yeah, and I did see if you FaceTime somebody, they come up in the glasses almost like they're there as opposed to sort of looking at your phone. Steve, great stuff all day in California. Thank you very much. All right, but will that move the needle on Apple stock? Will Apple investors make any money on this? Clio Capital Managing Director Sarah Kunst is here, as well as EMJ Capital founder and president Eric Jackson. Thank you both. Sarah, first to you. It looks cool, but $3,500 is a lot of money. It is a lot of money. And I think that the market reacted to that with a little bit of sticker shock. Uh, you know, we saw the, the stock dip after reaching an all time high today. But, you know, the reality is that that as the developer ecosystem grows, as the app ecosystem grows, if they come up with must use capabilities for this, if this becomes something every kid wants, you know, to keep parents sane on, on flights and long car rides. And I think there's a real opportunity for billions in revenue here. Eric, do you think people are going to buy it? Will it move the needle? I think people will buy it. I think the, the knee-jerk reaction is for all the cool kids to be dissing the price and saying 3,500, that's way too much. It kind of reminds me of Steve Ballmer's reaction to the iPhone uh, in, back in 2007. Um, the fact is Apple has such a huge installed base. I saw somebody re retweeting a, a Twitter poll saying, are you gonna buy this? And only 7% of the respondents said yes. Uh, if Apple got 7% of their total user base to buy this thing next year, that would be a slam dunk home run. Um, nobody remembers the price of the first generation Hermes Apple Watch. It, it's irrelevant. The important thing is they need to get this out there. It's a major new software platform for them. People will buy it. People were wowed today. It, this, is a, this is the biggest announcement since the iPad. I have no idea, Sarah, what this costs Apple to make, and they're going to be very close to the vest on that. Somebody might have to do a little reverse engineering for a best guess. To your point, if you add up all the parents, they buy it for their kids, they're watching Disney movies on it. I just wonder, how many do you have to sell to make a profit that will move the needle over the iPhone? 
You know, I, I think that it's not going to be an iPhone competitor, right? We use our phones much differently than we use any other device in our lives. But, you know, I think that there's a huge opportunity here as well for the App Store ecosystem and, and for, you know, subscription revenue. We've seen that, you know, Apple TV hasn't quite done what they've wanted it to do. And if this becomes a device where, you know, you're subscribing to watch, you know, anything from sports to, to Disney movies and sort of this 3D environment, that subscription revenue is really, really sticky and something that Apple's increasingly chasing as well. You know, Eric, Apple's stock is already at an all-time high. It didn't move to Sarah's point much today, but still it's, it's basically, you know, a couple of cents away, less than a buck away from an all-time high. Even with this headset, is Apple's stock still a buy? You have to look ahead and say, you know, how much bigger is this ecosystem going to grow? Um, this is not an iPhone. I agree with Sarah. Uh, this is just adding to the portfolio of products and services. Um, and is it gonna move the needle in terms of, is, is it gonna be an AirPods? Clearly it's much bigger than that. Is it gonna be another iPad? Like I said before, I, I, you know, I think it has a good shot at being that because it brings something completely new to people. And if, if you're saying that one year out, two years out, this could add another iPad to the portfolio, that is a big deal in terms of the stock. Yes, sir. Are you, buy, you buying more Apple or buying any Apple based on this news today? You know, when when a, when a stock hits an all-time high, you have to think about locking in your gains. But I think that this is a, an evolution and that there's more to come here. I, I think that Apple did something interesting today. That's it. And listen, the, the minute we have like one sort of a huge billion view YouTube video with some killer app, you're probably going to see sales take off. That price point, though, is a little bit steep. Eric and Sarah, thank you both very much. All right, speaking of money, here's what happened to your money today. The Dow did slip a bit. The Nasdaq finally cooled off its recent hot streak. It fell fractionally, but one of the few down days it has had recently. It's been rocket hot. On to our studs and duds du jour. Bath & Body Works jumping 5.5% for their third straight day of gains. Intel shares, though, down 4.5%. Speaking of Apple... They announced they would entirely rely on their own chips for new computers. Intel, down on that. Meantime, let's take a quick check on futures, see how things may be shaping up for tomorrow. And again, thinly traded, down just a touch. All right, up next, Hollywood's biggest star taking on films, biggest screen. Why a blockbuster battle is turning white hot between Tom Cruise and IMAX. Plus, the SEC battering Binance, Skybridge's Anthony Scaramucci, who those who think or two about dealing with crypto will join us with reaction. All right, welcome back. Time now for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories you may be talking about tomorrow morning. First up, Panasonic is set to boost battery production at Tesla's factory in Nevada. The move could hint that Tesla struggles to secure batteries in the increasingly competitive EV market. According to a Panasonic exec, Tesla recently told the company it would, quote, buy as much as they can make. Next up, a stock we just talked about. Intel set to sell $1.5 billion stake in Mobileye. That is the self-driving tech company. According to a new regulatory filing, Intel is offering 35 million shares of Mobileye. The sale comes at a time when Intel, facing intense competition in the autonomous car market from NVIDIA and Qualcomm, Mobileye stock down nearly 4%. Meantime, a blockbuster battle is brewing in Hollywood. Tom Cruise reportedly, quote, pretty pissed 
But his new $300 million Mission Impossible movie is getting bumped out of IMAX screens by Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Sources tell Puck's Matt Belloni that Cruz Bellini has been complaining loudly to Paramount execs and others about the IMAX situation. So what is the situation? Well, Cruz's seventh Mission Impossible movie will only have a week and a half run in IMAX theaters when it opens July 12th, while Nolan's Oppenheimer will replace it with an exclusive three-week run when it premieres on July 21st. Oppenheimer, we should note, is a Universal Pictures film, that, of course, a part of our parent company. And maybe adding a little insult to injury for Cruz, the new Mission Impossible film will also have to compete against, yes, Barbie, which opens on the same day as Oppenheimer. For more on this, bring in the writer of the article, the man who broke the news, that is Puck News founding partner, Matt Bellany. Matt, thank you for coming back on Last Call. I mean, this is not just some battle of egos, right? This is a big money story, I would imagine. Absolutely. Now, don't get me wrong. Egos are involved Of here. course. But, <laughs> but Tom Cruise recognizes how important those IMAX screens are to him. His last movie, Top Gun Maverick, did about $110 million just in IMAX. And that's only about a third of the overall premium screen format, what they call the PLX. Those are the Dolby's and the bigger screens. And you get more money when people see the movie on those screens. And Cruz wants that extra money for this movie. And he knows that if you do the math, about $300 million of his last movie came from those screens. He wants to capture as many of them as he can. Yeah, I mean, it, but he's complaining, and you heard my sort of colorful language there. I was quoting him, so I guess that makes it all right. But is anything going to change? I mean, is the complaining going to move Oppenheimer off that three-week exclusive? i got to imagine that's a contractual obligation. It is. Not on, on IMAX. Cruz is going to have a tough time there because that's a contractual thing. And Oppenheimer was dated before Mission Impossible was dated. So Paramount, the studio behind Mission Impossible – Put the movie on this date with only a week and a half of IMAX screens, knowing full well that Oppenheimer was coming. Where Cruz has a better argument and where he's been calling around town is to try to secure the non-IMAX screens, the premium screens that are not in that IMAX formula uh, format. Those are up for grabs right now. And he's been showing his movie to exhibitors and others, trying to essentially say to them, Look at my movie. It's great. It deserves to get these mm. premium screens. So please put that on. And I got to imagine, aside from ego, of course, the reason that Tom Cruise cares is he must have, you know, like he does with most of his movies, he gets a share of the box office. Not just he doesn't get a salary for the movie and then that's it. Like Top Gun Maverick, I assume he's going to take a huge chunk of that. But, you know, honestly, put on your movie reviewing hat, Matt. Is Oppenheimer or Barbie really a threat to who goes to see Mission Impossible? I got to imagine that maybe three completely different with a slight overlapping audience. Yeah, I mean, Mission Impossible has been tipped as a bigger hit potentially. Now, Oppenheimer may play longer and it's going to have its own audience. Barbie has its own very separate audience from both of those movies. So they could all three be hits. But if I had to bet on one of these horses in advance, I would bet on Mission Impossible. And that's essentially Cruz's argument here. He's looking at Oppenheimer and saying to the IMAX people, my movie is going to be bigger. Why have you committed 
to these IMAX screens to this movie that's not going to be as big as mine. Now, Christopher Nolan, the director of Oppenheimer, has a long relationship with IMAX. He shot this film with IMAX cameras with the understanding that it would get this uh-huh. three-week window. And again, this was all decided before Mission Impossible decided to put the movie on the, the date a week and a half before. So the IMAX thing is pretty much well settled. It's the other screens that... Cruz is going after, and I think he's got a pretty compelling argument. The only thing that I'm a, that I'm that I'm ashamed of and embarrassed of in this whole segment, Matt, is that neither you nor I use this as an opportunity to say something like Tom Cruise has gone nuclear over the <laughs> Oppenheimer. You said it, not me. It's you know, I'm a dad. It's a dad joke. Matt Bellany, a puck. Thank you. Thank you. All right, a big show and a big guest tomorrow night. Restaurant, casino, hotel mogul Tillman Fertitta will join us. No one's got a better finger on the pulse of the American economy. You'll get insight nobody else has if you tune in tomorrow night on Last Call. All right, but still ahead tonight, staggering allegations by the SEC against crypto giant Binance. Anthony Scaramucci, who had a front row seat to the collapse of FTX, is here with his reaction and insight next As the snazzy graphic says, time now for your daily RBI. And this Monday, it's all about your money and a pretty random but interesting milestone of sorts. Because once the Federal Reserve began raising interest rates, there were probably a lot of people out there, you know who you are, who thought the stock market would crash. And for a while, it did. The Fed's first rate hike was on March 16th of last year, and the S&P 500 was at 4,400. It then sank all spring and summer and briefly fell below 3,500 in early October, a drop of about 20%. But since then, it has been clawing its way back. And according to our friends at Bespoke Investment Group, if you include dividends, the S&P 500 is now, nine months later, flat on a total return basis since that first rate hike. In other words, it did claw its way all the way back. Call that a Overall, 15-month round trip, not bad, but also not great because you want to make money, right? Not just get back to even. So we dug out the five S&P 500 stocks that have gained the most since the Fed's first rate hike. And it is a rather motley crew. NVIDIA, probably no surprise, up 71%. But how about Baltimore-based energy company Constellation Energy powering up 73% in 15 months or Las Vegas Sands 78% gain? Two other stocks, they, you know what? They say, hold my beer since the Fed's first rate hike. Lamb Weston Holdings has baked in 126 pop, 126% pop. That's an Idaho-based potato company, thus the baked-in comment. And coming in first, First Solar, up 175% since the Fed first raised rates 15 months ago. Energy, slot machines, semiconductors, and potatoes. Printing money. If that's not random but interesting, I don't know what is. All right. Next up, a suit that could threaten the world's largest crypto exchange. The SEC is charging Binance and its founder, Chang Peng Zhao, better known as CZ, with 13 securities law violations. Those charges include operating as an unregistered exchange, broker and clearing agency, operating the unregistered offer and sale of crypto assets, failing to restrict U.S. investors from accessing Binance.com and misleading investors. 
In response to the filing, Binance said in a statement, quote, we want to be clear that while we take the allegations in the SEC's complaint seriously, they should not be the subject of an SEC enforcement action, let alone on an expedited basis. They are unjustified, end quote. Binance coin falling about 8% on that news and Bitcoin down more than $1,000 in the session, though, Keep in mind, it is up huge on the year. Context is always key. But what does this massive lawsuit potentially mean for crypto at large or Binance? Joining us now is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder of Skybridge Capital, also had a front row seat to the collapse of Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX. Anthony, appreciate it. What do you make of this SEC action? Is it justified or unjustified? Well, listen, I, I'm not close enough to be able to declare whether it's justified or unjustified. I think there are, are three levels of analysis here, though. The macro analysis is that the SEC has decided, Brian, that they want the United States out of crypto assets, digital assets in general, and they want to more or less make these exchanges unlawful here in the United States. That could be the aftermath of the Sam Bankman-Fried FTX story and the embarrassment that he caused. Because as you and I both know, he was very close to getting margin approval from the CFTC. And a one short year ago, he was a media and political darling in Washington. So I think you've got a big macro headwind for the industry. Number two, as it relates to what's going on with CZ and Binance, you'll notice in that complaint that nobody lost money. They have not made that allegation, which is why this is currently a civil complaint. Uh, and I believe uh, that Binance has very good counsel and they will likely, as others have, you know, in our industry, uh, pay a fine here mm -hmm. and agree to clean up their practices. Uh, and I think there's a positive outcome that could take place for CZ and Binance if they can get to a settlement with the SEC. And then just the last point that I would make about this is what do our political leaders, the political establishment want? Washington want to have happen to the crypto industry in the United States? Do they want to cede the mantle of U.S. financial services leadership to the United Kingdom, which, which I am here right now, and the laws are opening up, to Bermuda, where Coinbase is now mm -hmm. filing to move assets in exchange to Bermuda, to Hong Kong, uh, where the Chinese government has decided that they want to allow for digital assets and digital property in Hong Kong. And then, of course, uh, the amazing country of the United Arab Emirates. They have a 160-plus page document uh, that Abu Dhabi Global Management has elucidated yeah. what they're going to do to regulate. So so you guys got to tell me. Um, uh, you, you have to figure it out at the political just, level. But we have 200-year-old 200, 200 leaders. I mean, we've got people that go back to George Washington huh. that are sitting in the Congress and uh, I think it's a mistake for the country. They may have voted for George Washington. I don't know. Uh, you know, Anthony, here, here's the thing. Okay. Uh, uh, George Washington would have probably got this, by the way. Well, and so what? Made, and it would have made sense to him about the libertarian construct of these digital assets and the need to have U.S. citizens allowed to be owning those assets and to have it regulated fairly. Well, here in the United States. Let's, let's talk about Gary Gensler and the SEC, okay? They tweeted out something today that included a profanity. They were quoting another quote that had the F word in it, which, you know, is pretty shocking for the SEC, even quoting somebody else to be tweeting that out. You referenced the UAE, Hong Kong, 
Bermuda. You know, we know about the Bahamas. Do you feel like Gensler, who, by the way, came in with a lot of crypto hype and hope, right? He taught it at MIT, has been behind the curve and is now maybe trying to, to make up for lost time, so to speak? Well, listen, I, I think he's in cahoots with Elizabeth Warren. She's effectively now the president for financial services. They're sort of riding around in the Batman and Robin car together. And so he's going to do her bidding. Uh, but it's not in the best interest of the United States. It's not in the best interest of the people that he's supposedly trying to protect. Moreover, if you look at that quote that he put out there, um, you know, listen, I can spot a publicity hound, Brian, because I primarily am one. I mean, but that's a ridiculous uh, quote to put out there on a very serious case like this. He didn't give the complaint to Binance. He shared the complaint with the journalist community before he shared it with Binance. And so he is trying to assault Binance right now in the field of public relations. And I, and I get that, but this is way more serious than that. This is about the future of digital assets in the United States. And the question is, will the United States continue to lead the world in financial services? And if we are, then we've got to have common sense regulation. And just go back to the 1930s yeah. when, when President Roosevelt said, okay, how do we regulate this? They put a commission together and they got advice from the industry. And of course, you know, we set up a self-regulatory organization, which is concomitant to the SEC. We're doing nothing yeah. like that in digital assets. There, there, there are some, leave us three to there, five there, years there are some, like I did a, I did a, a one-on-one fireside chat, uh, gosh, four years ago with Hester Peirce down at Virginia Tech. And, you know, she was very pro-crypto, pro-crypto regulation, you know, sort of, you know, so she's she's at the SEC still. I think there are people, to my point, Anthony, that get it. But to your point, as we move, things are moving around the world. And once things are set up, they're, they're probably going to be there for a while. We're not going to become some great crypto empire 10 years from now. Right. Is that a fair statement? It's got to be. Well, it's got to be. Well, now. Yeah, it's yes, be now. I want to be optimistic. I'm with you on that, but I do want to be optimistic. And she has certainly been commissioner. Breer has been a terrific advocate for the industry. Uh, the good news for the United States is we recirculate these elites. The good news for the United States, there are 77 million people in the country that own crypto assets. And they are going to be listening very closely in 2024 in terms of where people are thinking. Uh, Congressman uh, McHenry obviously has made some proposals that make sense for the industry. And so the very good news for us is that we don't live in an autocracy and there's a constant recirculation of elites at the top. And, you know, and Gary will be on the dustbin of history very shortly. It's just a matter of time here. He's got this thing completely wrong. Uh, and it's a mistake, but you know what? It'll set us back a few years. It's not going to set us back forever. Uh, and there'll be common sense oriented people. This is the very same person mm-hmm. as a professor that said 75% of these assets didn't meet the Howey test. They were not securities. Now he's listing uh, uh, tokens as securities where, I don't know, I don't remember the legislation that described them as securities. Now, he wants to take it back to the 1933 Act. I get that. He wants to take it back to 1940. But it would be like you and I inventing the automobile and having traffic laws. But now the airplane is in existence and we're going to apply the traffic laws of the automobile to the airplane. I I don't think it makes sense. Uh, Most people realize that all we have to do is get together and build a program 
of common sense oriented regulation like they're yeah. doing in the UK, UAE and Hong Kong. But he doesn't want to do that. Uh, and there's political reasons for that. And I guess what I'm saying is, why don't we serve the American public as opposed to all of this unnecessary tribalism and political posturing? Well, political posturing has been a, a D.C. staple since George Washington. Didn't matter what the era was. Anthony Scaramucci, great. In a, we'll, we'll I get, agree with you, but in, a, in, a, in, yeah. in crisis periods, we do better. We're not in a crisis period, but let's act like we are and get some fair regulation on the books. With FTX blowing up and billions potentially still missing, that that's, as you well know, it's, that seems crisis-ish. We'll get, a, we, lot of those, a lot of those assets are on the road to recovery, let's as hope. we both know. Um, you know, you know he, he, listen, that was a fraud, and he deserves the jail time that he's about to get. But this is a totally different situation. Yeah. Go look at the complaint. 100%. Now, one person lost money, Brian. 100%. Absolutely. Anthony, great insight as always. Appreciate it. No, it's late where you are. Thank Happy you. To be here. All right. Speaking of, SEC Chair Gary Gensler will be on Squawk on the Street tomorrow. Probably talk more about that lawsuit. Maybe address some of the things Anthony just hit on. Do not miss it. 9 a.m. Eastern, SEC Chair Gary Gensler. All right. Still ahead. Saudi Arabia slashing oil production in July at a critical time for America. We'll talk about that, OPEC, and the SPR next. All right, welcome back. There is a big story developing out west, which could have major supply chain and inflation implications. Dock workers at critical ports along the West Coast are walking out and slowing other operations as they fight for a new contract. Some at the Port of Oakland are not showing up for work or working slowly, and that cargo is thus being impacted. Jane Wells at the Port of Long Beach, America's second biggest, and she joins us now with more on what's going on. Jane. Hi, Brian. Tonight, the group representing the shippers and terminal operators accused union dock workers of slowing operations from here to Seattle today. And the federal uh, retail, uh, the National Retail Federation is asking that the Biden administration pleading with them that they start to intervene. The union, I've asked them, they have no comment, but I wanna give you two numbers. The first one is 469 billion. That is the estimated total worth of goods that come through the West Coast ports annually. And the other number, 22,000, the number of dock workers who have now been working at those ports without a new contract for almost a year. Some of them are starting a little frustrated. They're not showing up. They're being accused of things like unnecessarily red tagging equipment to take it out of service. This basically started Thursday night, if you take a look. When a note went out from the local uh, union hall uh, about daily assignments, adding, quote, a stop work meeting tonight. Well, then Friday, the day after that meeting, some dock workers stayed home. The Port of Oakland shut down. Terminal operators claimed there were no shows at other ports, too, continuing into the weekend. Then this morning, two terminals here at the Port of Long Beach told truckers don't even bother showing up for the morning shift. That included the TTI terminal, the largest one here, currently hosting three ships, shutting out truckers, even as we saw they had enough dock workers to at least service one of the ships. This is happening as many shipping customers have already been rerouting traffic away from the West Coast, in part because these negotiations are just dragging on. Look at the numbers. Cargo volume has been dropping every month this year. In April alone, total volume was down 22% from a year ago at the Port of Los Angeles, down 20% here in Long Beach, down 7% up in Oakland. 
Uh, well, that means there is more space at the port now for containers, but we are even starting to see congestion begin again, Brian. Uh, we're told there could be two weeks worth of congestion of containers here, and that could be a problem because the goods coming here now include back to school and after that, the holiday stuff. Yeah, and an industry insider told me that maybe they're looking for a portion of the huge profits these shipping companies made during COVID. They were simply printing money. Those rates have come back down, so really could be a tough negotiation. But the issue of automation, Jane, robots effectively also, I got to imagine, is a big deal. It is a big deal. There are some reports the two sides have maybe reached an agreement on automation uh, and what sort of man hours will be incorporated with that. I want to show you this, this terminal right over here. This is a $1.5 billion terminal, the Long Beach Container Terminal. That is a mostly automated terminal, and you can see it is working tonight. Trucks are coming in, containers are coming off the ships. That is a future that the uh, longshoremen know they can't avoid, but they also fear. Ironically, that may not be the big sticking point right now. It may be over good old-fashioned things like pay and retirement. Jane Wells, Port of Long Beach. Say, uh, I feel like deja vu all over again with the ports. I think we've been here before a couple of years ago for different reasons. Jane. We have. We have. There we go. Always love seeing you, Jane. Thank you. All right. Meantime, the price of shipping fuel, oh, and gasoline for your car may be going higher. May. Sunday, OPEC met in Austria. And while the group as a whole did not make any new production cuts, although they extended the ones that they did back in April, Saudi Arabia said it will do a voluntary 1 million barrel per day cut in July. But that cut could extend past July as well. All this, the U.S. says it wants to begin refilling our strategic petroleum reserve. And it wants to do it with oil prices around $67 to $72 per barrel. The SPR is at a 40-year low. The Biden administration and previously agreed to congressional mandates have sold well over 200 million barrels from the emergency reserve, and we would need more than 300 million barrels to get it back to the levels of a few years ago. Let's tie it all together with Bob McNally of the Rapid Amber Group. Bob, great to have you on. I appreciated your research note right afterwards. I learned a lot from it. Thank you very much. Your take on this, I don't want to say OPEC move, but this move by Saudi Arabia. Oh, by the way, as U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is set to visit the kingdom this week. You're right, and good to see you, Brian. So Minister Abdulaziz and his counterparts, but it's really Saudi oil minister Abdulaziz, he laid it on the line, and it's for stability's sake. And he's hoping for a repeat performance of January 2021, the last time uh, OPEC Plus rolled over, as they did on Sunday, but Saudi Arabia gifted, uh, he called it a lollipop this time, a million barrel a day cut. And after then, crude oil prices started to rise steadily and those COVID surpluses cleaned up. So a lot of folks are talking about, is the kingdom going back to being that multi-year swing producer role back in the early 80s when they cut all the way down to 2 million barrels a day? I don't think so. He's thinking he's going to pull off another January 2021. What the market needs and what speculators need to understand is that Saudi Arabia is willing to cut, continue cutting, cut again if necessary, uh, to bridge us to that period later this year when he hopes, and certainly OPEC's balances say, the market should tighten up and crude oil prices should rise. Is it, is it, is it a supply and demand situation? I mean, they, it always is. We know that. But there's a lot of paper trades that we know, some traders on paper that have been pushing, you know, sh trying to short oil down as well. Does that have, you think, something, you know, Saudi versus the market? Or is this, as I maybe speculated to about this morning on Squawk Box, Bob, trying to play cover 
for a Russia which may be selling more oil on the global market than they may be letting on. Is that possible? Well, yeah, it certainly is. Now, the first thing, though, is we may be in a situation, and I think they fear that we may be in a like mid-2008 situation, where if you look out the window, if you look at the oil data, you don't see a big problem. But prices started collapsing. The prices were telling you more about the fundamentals than the fundamentals were telling you about the prices, i.e. we're entering a massive downturn. I think SVB really put the fear into them, Brian. So they have this 2008 risk and they said, we're not going to cut late. We're not going to we're going to get ahead of that. But if you look at their own balances mm -hmm. and you've been in the basement of OPEC, you've seen them. Those numbers are as tight as mine, Goldman's and everybody else. So what do you believe? The data you see out the window, your own forecast or this fear, this ghost of 2008, when the market's telling you something you may not see in the data, that's what they want to get ahead well, of. We've we've sold over 200 million barrels from the SPR. Uh, people can insert their own reason for why we did that. You know, there's people who believe it was inherently political. Whatever, it's done. How much of an impact, if any, Bob, has that 250 million or whatever the number is, barrels of oil on the market in a year and a half impacted or distorted pricing? You know, I think it had a fairly small impact. Um, the main reason oil prices roofed last year, we saw $5 a gallon, is because everyone thought that we were going to lose 3 million barrels a day for most of last year. That, this SPR could do nothing against. And it was only when that Russian oil, as you just noted, not only did it not go offline, it's been flowing fine and it still is. Only that caused prices to revert. The transfer of oil from the SPR to commercial stocks helped a little bit, but you know that just leaves our commercial, our, our strategic stocks that much lower mm -hmm. if we have a problem in the Middle East or so forth. So I don't think it had a had a big effect. But going forward, it will add to the geopolitical risk premium when spare capacity shrinks and we have a problem in Libya, Hormuz, or somewhere else. Yeah, I know. Although we have been waiting on that for a while, and prices have been, you know, to to the to the thankfulness probably of the American consumer have been kept reasonably low-ish. Bob McNally, Rapidan Group. Thank you, Bob. You bet. Thanks. Right on deck. And speaking of burning fuel and burning rubber, there's a Formula One racing frenzy in America, and you may be able to profit from it. I'll tell you how next. Formula One car racing has exploded in popularity in America recently. We went from no races to one to two. And this year, there will be three Grand Prix, Austin, Miami, and Las Vegas. And that F1 frenzy has helped fuel a rally in this stock. It's called Liberty Formula One Group. It's the owner of F1, and it's public. It trades under the ticker F-W-O-N-A. Probably could come up with a better ticker than that. Anyway, it's up more than 20% this year, and your next guest says... That stock can keep moving higher. Joining us now is TD Cowan analyst Stephen Gagola. His firm initiated coverage today of Liberty Formula One with an outperform and a $90 per share target, 40% higher than where it is now. Stephen, I love talking racing and I love talking stocks. So this is perfect. What's the primary one or two points behind your very bullish thesis on Formula One? Well, first, thanks for having me on, Brian. And um, I just want to point out that there's actually two stocks under this uh, tracking group. So there's the K shares, which uh, the C shares, which are um, non-voting, and the A shares, which you just called out. 
I think I just want to highlight, um, you know, we think this is a very unique business to own in this environment. We characterize it as a capital light royalty uh, on the growth of a premium sport league. Um, by all indications, it's a tremendous business, capital lights, efficient tax structure, high and growing return on invested capital. Um, and we think it has some strong structural tailwinds uh, behind it. Um, mm. And so we, we and we also think it's resilient uh, in the face of a potential uh, consumer discretionary downturn, given the highly contracted revenue uh, and the variable cost structure. As somebody who attended his first F1 race back when the F1 was in Long Beach, California, well before you were born, Stephen, I've loved the sport forever. I still couldn't tell you how they make money. What is the primary one or two ways they actually make money? Yeah, so Formula One Group makes money on the exploitation of the commercial rights that they purchased in 2017 for roughly $4.7 billion. So essentially, uh, promoter race promotion fees that they collect from third-party promoters in cities around the globe, the, the roughly 22 uh, you know, Grand Prix that they're, they're putting on this year, uh, media rights, um, and the monetization of, of those broadcast rights globally and uh, sponsorship fees. And they also have a, a paddock hospita hospitality business uh, that's very lucrative and high margin um, that's on site at the vast majority of, of these events that they control. What's the, what's the risk? What's the bear story on F1? Just kind of global <laughs> economic slowdown or Verstappen winning every race and everybody just gets bored? <laughs> Well, I'm, start, I'm starting to get bored this year. Not gonna I, lie. That's what that's what a lot of fans of you know that's what that's what sort of some pushback we've gotten. But um, you know, historically, Formula One has you know seen one team or one driver dominate for some period of time. I, I don't think it's too much of an issue. You know, Liberty's put uh, together in the new Concord Agreement that was entered into in 2021, uh, operational uh, you know cost caps for the teams and more equitable distribution of the prize fund, which mm -hmm. I think over time will make for a more balanced playing field. Yep. Uh, I think you know one of you know a couple pushbacks are probably on valuation at this point. But uh, you know I, I always tell investors remember that the value of business is the cash it generates over Thank its you. life, not just next year. And and so we think there's a long runway for growth here and 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 uh, compounding uh, EBITDA above consensus. Stephen, um, we, also, we, I think, Stephen, I got unfortunately they cued the music. I'll kill the next segment if I don't go, yeah, and, and then I'll the producers will kill me. Stephen Glagola, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Thanks, Brian. Up next, the entrepreneur pushing all the right buttons on a booming vending machine business. It's Make It Monday, and it's next. All right, welcome back. Time now for our Make It Monday series, where we highlight some amazing entrepreneurs across America. Tonight, meet Marcus Cram. He's the founder of Joiner Vending. It's a vending machine company where he buys, places, and stocks vending machines across the Mid-Atlantic area. And that growing business now brings in more than 300000 bucks a year in sales. And it's growing. My name is Marcus Graham, and I made over $300,000 last year for my vending machine business. I have 21 vending machines spread across Baltimore, Philadelphia, D.C., and Detroit. This snack machine makes $800 a month. And this drink machine makes $1,000 a month. Before starting the vending machine business, I was making $30,000 a year. I was living in poverty, and I was just hoping that one day I can turn my life around. I started my vending machine business in 2018. I had a friend who saw a woman taking cash out of a vending machine, and it kind of sparked the idea about maybe we should get into it. A typical day for me as an owner of joint vending is I wake up, I check my vending machine sales, I contact my staff to see what machines they're gonna be stocking. 
I then shop for product for the machines that I service, and then I go stock the machines. Not many people know that anybody can own them. There's low startup costs and there's a potential for high return. I buy a bottle of Coke for 55 cents and I sell it for 175. I profit about $1.20 per bottle of Coke that I sell. My revenue goes towards buying product for the vending machines. 10% goes towards paying my staff. Another 10% goes towards miscellaneous things like gas. And the other 50% I profit. So I'm looking to expand to multiple states, add more vending machine locations around the nation. I've been able to change my life. I've been able to change my sister's life. I've been able to change my family's life with the vending machine business. And I want to change other people's life by talking about the business that not a lot of people know about. Well, they do now. Marcus Graham, welcome to CNBC and Last Call. Should have called it Charm City Vending, by the way. Hey, congrats on all your success. But the one thing I, first thing we uh, talked about this, I said, are you spending all your time driving around refilling these things? Because that is not a good use of your time. No, actually, uh, I don't stock any of my vending machines. Uh, I have staff in all of the places that I service. Um, and uh, they, they take care of all the stocking and shopping. Oh, good, because otherwise you're just constantly driving around checking them. How big, you said it was kind of a low cost of entry. Can I roughly ask what like a vending, a Pepsi vending machine would cost? Um, if you get it refurbished, you can pay about, I don't know, 1200 to $1,500. A new one would be about $4,000, $5,000. And then do you have to pay to put it somewhere or do people pay you because they want the vending machine there? Um, it's split. Most of the time you won't have to pay because you're like a service provider, uh, so they just want your services. But there are situations where a company will pay you for your services. Yeah. And biggest, how much growth runway is there for you and Joiner? How much growth? Uh, I mean, this past year we 500,000 and we're hoping to do more than that this upcoming year. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to let it go. We're going to tell our viewers to go watch more of your story. When you hit 500K, and I think you will, let us know. Love to get you back on. Uh, oh, we did. We did 500K this, in 2022. Oh, so you're we're oh, trying to go for a million in 2023. Well, when you hit a million, let us know, or 10 million. We'll have you back on. Marcus <laughs> Graham, appreciate it. Great story Thank there. You. To learn more about CNBC Make It, you can go to cnbcmakeit.com. Subscribe to the newsletter as well. That's it for us tonight. We'll see you tomorrow night. Shark Tank is next.